Hey everyone, this is Cabane the Christian. Today what I want to talk about is the idea of the household in the letter to the Ephesians and what we can learn about the household, what we can learn about the temple, what we can learn about the creation, and what we can learn about the church by looking at the language of the letter to the Ephesians. First, let's ask God for wisdom. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who loves mankind, with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. Unto thee do we ascribe glory together with thy Father, who is everlasting, that only good and life-creating spirit, now and ever to the ages of ages. Amen. Before continuing, I want to thank everyone who has become a patron or a YouTube member. If you have not yet become a patron, but you enjoy this content on a regular basis and are in a financially sound position, I ask that you please consider becoming a monthly patron. The lowest tier is at uh, only $5, and you can also make a $0.99 cent donation with no premium benefits through Anchor, also linked below. You can also make a one-time uh, uh, contribution using the chat box on the right of this video if you are watching this while it premieres. In the future, YouTube is going to provide a means to make one-time contributions whether you're here for the premiere or not, but that's what we have to work with right now. So I've tried to make this video several times and it ends up getting just too far afield even for me. So what I want to start with is by giving the basic shape of the letter to the Ephesians conceptually. What exactly is Paul doing here in Ephesians? What is his position in relation to the church? And how is that position spelled out in the language that he uses? Ephesians is divided roughly, or not roughly, but it, there are other subdivisions, but the um, most obvious division is Ephesians 1 to 3, Ephesians 4 to 6. This can be roughly articulated as theology on the one hand, practice on the other hand. Obviously, these two things go together intimately. There's no way that you can separate the knowledge of God intellectually when you get down to brass tacks and you get down to what it actually means to know the Logia of God. No way to separate that from the practical aspect of the spiritual life. But it's a difference of emphasis. There's very concrete practical uh, wisdom and commandments in 4 to 6 and in 1, 2, 3 have um, very kind of high-level biblically rooted Old Testament soaked theological exposition. So in Ephesians chapter uh, 3 verse uh, 17, Paul says this, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filmed with all the fullness of God several things I want you to note here. First of all, the knowledge of Christ is the way in which Paul spells out union with God in Christ. That is, to know Christ is to be bound up with his love, and to know Christ truly means that Christ is interior to your heart. So Jesus in the Gospel of John says that my Father and I will make my home in you. In my Father's house there are many dwellings. Well, in the context of the Gospel of John, one way to legitimately take this passage is to see the many dwellings as the many Christians in whom Father, Son, and Spirit dwell. Or, if, you, uh, if you'd prefer, Father and Son through 
the Spirit. Jesus gives the Spirit whom he has promised on the day of Pentecost, and it is through the Holy Spirit that the Father and the Son become interior to the human being so that he experiences what is called sanctification, or uh, theosis is to use the more traditional term. But no, Christ's interiority to the heart comes through our comprehension together with all the saints. This word saint here is holy one. And if you look at the Septuagint, this is a word which doesn't appear all that often, but when it does appear, it most frequently does so in the context of the divine council. That's the term that modern biblical academics tend to use. We would call it the communion of saints in a New Testament context. The angelic hosts might be what we would call it in an Old Testament context, use the traditional terminology. God comes with his holy ones. That's literally God comes with his saints. Deuteronomy 33, God comes with his holy ones. On Sinai, he rides through the clouds. That army which is with him are the angelic host. And the New Testament includes the, uh, uh, the baptized in whom the Spirit uh, dwells. We're seated in heaven with Christ. Uh, and we comprehend the love of Christ with all the saints. Meaning, in order to know Christ as Christ, as the Son... It must be something, it must be a knowledge which is known in communion with others. So to have love for the Son, in order for that love to be what it is, it must be love which is also towards the brothers. To use the language of household to begin with is to use the language of communion. Think about what a household fundamentally is at bottom. A household is where there is a table. It's where family relations are created, instantiated, and expressed. At the table, the family sits and eats the same food. And since you are what you eat, they are joined together into one body, one flesh. And one body and one spirit is a uh, phrase which Paul is going to use in this very letter, not so long after um, the passage which we just quoted here. And... The body, because Paul says there's one body and one spirit, the language of body, think about the context where we use it. Body politic. We talk about the body of the church. We talk about a body of evidence. Body refers to a unified organism of subsidiary subjects, might be one way to put it. I'm not using a technical term there, so... Um, when we speak of a body, we are speaking of something which could in principle be split into subsidiary subjects. But its existence as a body is such that it has a wholeness which affects and shapes out the mode of existence of each of its subsidiary parts. So the church is a body. It unifies in communion, in love, a multiplicity of subjects in concentric circles. So it unifies an individual nuclear family. It unifies a people. It unifies a civilization. It unifies civilizations with civilizations. It unifies the human family as one and many. God creates man in the image of God, as we've talked about before. The man 
who is created in the image of God, is the human family. It's that corporate organism, which is man. That's why God says, let us create man, male and female. There's a two-ness in the oneness. And then he says, let us go down when he scatters the nations in Genesis chapter uh, 11 at the Tower of Babel. There again, there is a creation of this multiplicity. The church is the gathering together of these nations which were divided such that they call upon the name of the same Lord even as they retain their individual tongues or languages. A body has to do with things which are unified in the midst of and even through their distinctness so that the unity is what it is because the distinctness is what it is. So that is why love, body, house, all of these things roll together here. Notice also the language of agricultural uh, symbolism here. Uh, being rooted and grounded. Well, think about that, that word root. Go back to Isaiah. Uh, the, uh, Isaiah 27 in the Messianic Age. Jacob shall take root and send forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Ultimately, this goes back to the third creation day where God creates fruit trees and grain plants, that is, fruit trees, fruit-bearing fruit, and plants in which there is seed. And both of these uh, subjects, both of these sorts of creature, are appropriated and utilized in a human context. So, the most obvious, most famous text would probably be Psalm chapter 1. The righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of water that bears its fruit in season. But in Genesis 1 itself, we see that man is told to be fruitful and multiply. In Genesis 3, we are told about a war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Man has seed. Man's existence as an organism is described as a tree. Man bears fruit for life or for death. And in Ephesians 3... This is being spelled out in the context of the household of God. If you look at the theme of wood in the book of Genesis, well, Genesis chapter 2, you've got the Garden of Eden. Then that wood is symbolically deconstructed and restructured in glorified form in the sanctified space, which is the ark. Uh, the uh, word is gopher wood. And that word is not used anywhere else in the Hebrew Bible, but it is uh, almost identical to another word that is used in that very context, and that is kofer, which is the word translated pitch. And pitch is what is covered inside and out. And that word for cover, it's atonement. So a lot of stuff going on here, but you can see the Garden of Eden provides the raw material, which through human instrumentality is restructured into a sacred or holy space, Noah is high priest. Noah directs the energies of the world in this microcosmic environment towards God and thereby purifies the entire creation because he is acting as a microcosm in relation to the macrocosm. Let's go back to the beginning of Ephesians. Ephesians 1-3. to Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us in him. This is an echo of Isaiah 42, where the servant is the elect one. 
the servant of the Lord. Now, in Isaiah 40 to 55, what's going on is God has called Israel as his servant. But Israel is repeatedly unfaithful in the face of God's continuing redemptive activity on her behalf. And then in Isaiah 40, 49 to 54, the servant of the Lord is both one who carries the destiny of Israel and the Redeemer of Israel. He brings Jacob back to God, and yet he himself is called Israel in Isaiah 49, verse 3. And despite his suffering, he remains faithful. The narrative of Israel's infidelity despite blessing is inverted, and he is faithful despite apparent curse. And he secures uh, the inheritance of the world to come for Israel, which expands to possess uh, the whole creation. So we're told the God of the whole earth is he called. The point here is that the servant is the focal point of Israel's election. Israel is elected, is chosen, is called as God's holy people. Israel is called the servant. But then Israel is whittled down to a single faithful Israelite. See Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, the prophet is called. He says, what's my mission going to be? And God says, your mission is to continue your prophetic work until basically nothing remains until the tree is whittled down to a stump and that has got to be whittled down some more the holy seed is its stump and immediately after that we have the prophecy of isaiah chapter 7 the birth of israel's messiah i've got videos by the way on isaiah 7 if you're questioning whether that's actually about the messiah or about the virgin birth uh, it definitely is so check those videos out uh, if you're interested so the language being chose chosen in him this is is about Christ. Moreover, it's an allusion to Deuteronomy chapter 7, because Deuteronomy 7, God chose Israel, elected Israel, and set his love on Israel. The point here is about the central role of Christ in the identity of the people of God. Take a look at this word foundation. We're used to thinking of this word foundation and you're going to see that this is a repeating theme in our reading of Ephesians, uh, you're used to thinking of the word foundation as something referring to a position in time. What is the foundation of the world? The foundation of the world is the moment when God created the world. But I want you to think of it instead in terms of architecture. Think of the foundation of the world as the first brick which is set down in God's creative project. So in Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth, and then he molds the earth during the six days so that it becomes more and more perfectly an image of its heavenly archetype. And then he makes man in his image to continue that creative project. So there is a ongoing work of creation that begins in the six days and is continuing throughout the Bible. And in that ongoing work, man is a partner with God. This is uh, one of the, if not the major narrative arcs in scripture. You can see my videos, Glorification and Redemption, if you're interested in pursuing that further. But the foundation of the world is this first stone, which is laid down. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That is, God's foreknowledge of Christ, as Peter says uh, in one of his letters, that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. The same phrase is used. God's foreknowledge of Christ precedes his creative intention for the world. Which is a way of saying 
that Christ in God's purpose is primary. Christ is he through whom and to whom and for whom all things exist. And the church exists in Christ. That's the implication of this being before the foundation of the world, that is, before the first brick is laid, and it's the implication of it being in Christ. The church is the purpose of God in creation. Christ is he through whom the church exists and unto whom the creation exists. Recall the close connection that the idea of the household has with the idea of the family. God creates the world as his house in which he dwells as father, bridegroom, and king. Well, look at Genesis chapter 14. The language of fatherhood and the language of God as creator are closely linked together. In Genesis 14, God is called the possessor of heaven and earth. Well, the word for possess can also be understood begetter. He's the begetter of heaven and earth. John chapter 1, all things were made through the only begotten Son. The pattern by which the only begotten Son moves outwards from the Father and returns inward to his heart in love by the Spirit, that is the very pattern which is imprinted on the motion of the world. The world moves according to a particular rhythm. That rhythm is harmonized with the rhythm of the triune God. So the language of household, the language of God as creator, um, and, oh, we should mention before we move on to the next point, book of Proverbs. Wisdom is what? Who, rather? A master craftsman, working and rejoicing by God from the beginning of his creation. We're told in Proverbs that uh, God possessed wisdom at the beginning of his way. Well, that word for possessed, it's this very word that can also be understood in the sense of begetting. And then at the end of the book of Proverbs, the uh, author asks, what is his name that is God's, and what is the name of his son? We should be thinking in terms of not only the injunction to the son of the author at the beginning of the book, the son is, is enjoined to be wise. Well, what does it mean for him to be wise? It means for him to be likened unto the perfection that inheres in the one who is begotten at the beginning of God's ways. That is hypostatic wisdom, the logos, the eternal son of God. And wisdom is a ma master craftsman. Christ is the pattern, the archetype for the stuff, the structure of the world. It is in Christ that the world not only holds together, but holds together in the way that it does. The specific wiring of the world, elegant and beautiful and functional. There's no real uh, separation between functionality and aesthetics when you get down to the bottom of things. Uh, it is in Christ, it is in the Logos, that the world is wired to be the way that it is, in the elegant way that it is. So that structure is described as a household. See, what is going on in a household is you have different materials that are being worked, structured, and placed in relation to each other unto the glory of God. Well, the connection between family and household is accentuated here because in love, remember this goes back to Deuteronomy 7, he's, God sets his love on Israel. In love, he predestined us 
for adoption as sons through Jesus the Messiah, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So we have the idea of sonship here. The household is the cosmic context within which the human family lives in relation to God. And at every level of human existence, man mirrors and expresses the life of God. At every level of human existence, God's inner relation within the triune life is expressed and manifested. And that is why we have, in the immediate context of the language of foundation, this is the foundation stone which begins the construction of the house. God is building a house with man as his co-workers. Paul speaks of, uh, uh, of himself in these very terms. Paul is a co-worker with God and building up God's household. And it's in this place that we hear about adoption as sons. How? Through with which he has blessed us in whom? The beloved. Uh, this is an echo of uh, uh, the baptism of Jesus at which Jesus is anointed by the Spirit. Uh, this or you uh, is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this is another piece of evidence that the language of election here is an allusion to Isaiah 42. Because the words pronounced upon Jesus at his baptism, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, Echoes not only Psalm 2, where you are my son, today I have begotten, you ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your allotted possession, but also Isaiah 42, behold my servant in whom I delight or in whom I am well pleased. It's a double allusion to both of these texts. So we see in back when we uh, uh, first started Kind of relaunching this channel, I have I had a video called Thinking in Biblical Grammar where I talked about the way in which concepts are related to each other in ways that might seem counterintuitive um, uh, but are deeply intuitive for uh, biblical theology. This is an instance of what it means to cash out biblical grammar. You want to see which concepts are most closely implicit in the primary uh, concept which is being elucidated. Uh, Look at Ephesians uh, chapter 1, uh, verse, uh, verse uh, 8. Uh, Riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Notice the language of wisdom here. Remember wisdom. This goes back to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Tree of knowledge of good and evil is sought because it gives insight. Goodness is, uh, is known so that man can fulfill his purpose as a co-creator with God because God shapes the world and then measures it according to the standard or pattern of his own goodness. Man, to have dominion, to have exaltation, must have the knowledge of divine goodness, but he must have it at the right time. To seek the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil before his time means that Man is going to seek dominion, seek wisdom apart from God, which of course is an impossibility, which leads to death. This is the real fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as the plan for the fullness of the times to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth.
So this is such a full passage. Um, the first thing I want to point you to is the word mystery. This word mystery here is used in a regular pattern throughout the New Testament. And its biblical root, its Old Testament root, seems to be most close to the book of Daniel. Book of Daniel chapter uh, 2 speaks of the mystery of the kingdom. And what's going on in Daniel 2 is Daniel is being given a prophetic timeline of four successive kingdoms which are going to guard and protect Israel until the kingdom of God comes and assimilates all the kingdoms of the earth into itself. I know in some ways that, that might strike you as an unusual reading of the text, but I've talked about it uh, elsewhere. I recommend James Jordan's commentary on the book of Daniel. Um, What's being sought after in Daniel 2 is a mystery, and it's specifically the mystery of the kingdom. But something else is interesting. We see the conjunction here in Daniel 2 of temporal and spatial categories. When we hear about the temple, the sanctuary, the household, it is doubly referring in Daniel 2 both to the succession of kingdoms and this single structure within which Israel dwells, because you have this single man made out of metal, which is made out of iron, bronze, silver, and gold, which are successful successively as you move inward closer to the divine presence. It is successively um, uh, the metals that you find in the holy temple. They have an increasing degree of sacredness. And at the end of the book of Daniel, you see the barrel man. The barrel man is kind of a living, walking, glorious archetype for the metal man. And it is, in fact, the pre-incarnate Logos, who is the paradigm or pattern for the creation and thus for the temple as a microcosm of the creation. But simultaneously, you see temple imagery combined with prophetic imagery about the development of the kingdom through time. And if you just take that, and you keep that in your mind, and you look at the word plan in light of that, this goes back to what we were talking about when we spoke about the meaning of the word foundation. You shouldn't just be thinking of plan as what God is going to do at point A, and then time's going to pass and he's going to do something else point B, then time's going to pass and then point C, so on and so forth. The primary meaning, at least the one that's not often recognized, is that of blueprint. So what is the plan? The plan is the blueprint for God's house. God is building the whole creation into a place of his dwelling. How? Because Christ is uniting the whole creation to himself. A plan for the fullness of time which he set forth in Christ. This is the Logos who is the archetype of every creature. And because Christ, the Logos, has joined himself with things in heaven, things on earth, he reorders and restructures things in heaven and things on earth around himself as a fit place for the divine indwelling by the Holy Spirit. And the word which is translated here is oikonomia. Sometimes it's rendered administration, uh, but you can see its root in the Greek word oikos or household. 
And the idea, as far as administration goes, because you see throughout, or in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is going to talk about the specific divine callings that exist in the church. Everything that exists, exists because God is actively working in it in a particular way to communicate one or another of his particular qualities in a specific modality. That's what distinguishes creatures from each other. Well, that pattern of being is something which is recapitulated in Christ, who appropriates the life of all creatures to himself, thereby communicating life to them and redeeming them. And that restructuring, that rewriting of the music, as it were, is something which we harmonize with by the Spirit. The human being incorporated by the Spirit into the church becomes a participant in this restructured, rebuilt household of God, which is the cosmos, which is the church. So the church becomes coextensive with the cosmos in Christ, who is the head. And in that way, it is a plan, it is a blueprint, but it is a blueprint not in a static kind of dead sense, where it's just a piece of paper. The blueprint is the active instrument by which God is working in the world, which was once dead, but which is now alive in Christ. Put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. I want to point, to, uh, point out another interesting feature of this text, and that's the spatial imagery. It's always helpful, I think, when reading scripture to think very concretely and to think visually about the symbolism that is used. At the beginning, we see Christ being described as the foundation of the world. We were predestined in Christ before or in front of the foundation of the world. He was the one who laid the cornerstone. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, we won't have time to get into this, but Ephesians 2 makes several allusions to the prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 4, Zerubbabel brings forth the cornerstone of the temple, and that is a sign of the outpouring of the Spirit. We can talk about that maybe another day. But the foundation is that which is underneath everything else. Paul is going to return to that when he talks about the foundation of apostles and prophets. But we also hear of Christ as he who is above all things. Christ comes into the world. He descends into the grave. Then he ascends above all things. And in descending into the grave and then ascending above all things, there is nothing which is left outside of his divine reach. In Ephesians chapter 1, we read these words. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, this verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand, that's Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. Psalm chapter 8. Um, uh, God creates man, crowns glory and honor, puts all things under his feet. Uh, Christ is the last Adam here. Puts all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So look at the way in which the language of body, the language of organism, is woven together in a beautiful way with the language of the household, with the language of architecture. Because, in fact, as we just talked about in the book of Daniel, these two images are united into one vision. The architectural 
space in which God dwells, the temple, is presented to us in the form of a human statue made out of the metals which also make up the temple. Christ is he who was at the foundation of the world. Peter tells us uh, Jesus is foreknown for the foundation of the world. He is also the one who is above all things. He is the beginning and the end. He is the beginning of all things because he is the logos through whom all things are made. He is the pattern out of which all things acquire their form. He is the power by which all things are given the power to exist and shape other things in the world. He is the master craftsman rejoicing at his father's side from the beginning. In the words of the apocalypse is the beginning of God's creation. The beginning of God's creation, not in the sense of his first creature, but as the sense of the beginning of a river, the source of life for everything which flows out of it. That's why Christ dwells in our heart through faith, Paul says in Ephesians. Well, what does Jesus say in the Gospel of John? Uh, Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The source of life, the source of a river, this heart from which living water is flowing, this corresponds to the, um, the existence of the Logos as the source for everything else that exists so that he communicates his own life to the creation through human beings and specifically through the instrumentality of our heart in which the Spirit dwells and in which he dwells by the Spirit. So he is before all things. He's at the foundation of the world, but he's also the end of all things, the goal of all things, he to whom all things are moving. And that uh, function he takes on in the incarnation, death, resurrection, and glorification in his ascension. And now, having been seated at the right hand of God, subjecting all things to himself, he is making his enemies his footstool. And we'll end on this point. To make his enemies his footstool is a fascinating image because it's a temple image. We see in Psalm 110 that Jesus is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, look at Isaiah 66. New heavens and new earth. The earth is God's footstool. So the Messiah shares in the throne of God and his enemies are conquered by being made into his footstool. And if you're acquainted with biblical language, then you know that this is ultimately good news. Because in becoming his footstool, we become an instrument by which he is present in us. He dwells in our heart through faith. We are incorporated into his body by his spirit. Uh, Rav uh, Samson Hirsch, a fascinating Orthodox Jewish scholar from the, uh, uh, the 19th century, who has all sorts of interesting ideas about the structure of the Hebrew language, um, he makes the suggestion, which is... Um, theologically rich, especially from a Christian point of view, that um, the word for man, Adam, is connected with the word for footstool in Isaiah 66.1. The word for footstool, Adam, Adam, Adam. 
the two are very close to each other. And if you know Hirsch's philosophy of the Hebrew language, you'll know why this is not just like an arbitrary um, uh, connection of two words based on a superficial similarity. Um, I would recommend, but you'd have to take a look into that if you want to understand the logic of it. Um, so, you know, as usual, there's always uh, more to say, but uh, uh, that's what I'll end with today. I was hoping that maybe it would be uh, a little more organized than it really was, but, you know, we're kind of, as we work through this, we're, we're, we're experimenting here and there. Um, oh, I just did, did want to note the uh, at the beginning of uh, the letter to the Ephesians speaks of our inheritance as being sealed and given to us as a down payment by the Spirit who adopts us as sons of the Father. This is why in Ephesians 6, Paul says, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. That is, your household should mirror the household. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Well, what Paul is doing is he's calling back to the beginning of the letter where living long in the land is about inheriting the world to come because the land of Canaan is the down payment of the transfigured creation. That's not just a New Testament thing. It's an Old Testament thing. Isaiah 66 uses, Isaiah 65, 66, uses the language of new heavens and new earth in the context of a series of allusions to Numbers 14. And where Numbers 14 speaks of the promised land of Canaan, Isaiah 65-66 speaks of the new heavens and the new earth. There's all sorts of, of, of amazing stuff we could go into, but I'll cut it off there. Um, tomorrow we will have James Snap on the show to talk about the Pericopi Adulteri, to talk about the story of the woman caught in adultery, why he thinks it's an authentic part of John's gospel. Um, I hope you... Uh, can uh, catch that and its premiere. And thank you so much.